the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. My name is Mark, and I'm the pastor of the Congregation of St. Thomas the Doubter, an independent ecumenical congregation for all people that embraces holy doubt, the importance of grace, and the power of solidarity in community. You can find out more about our congregation online at www.stthomascongregation.org. This podcast offers the scripture lessons and sermons from our Sunday evening services. In the future, it may also be a place for conversation and discussion on various issues of religion and faith. This is episode 10, and is from the service for May 21st, 2023, the seventh Sunday in Easter. The scripture lesson is Acts 17:22 through 34, and the sermon is entitled, To an Unknown God. We hope you enjoy the episode. Our lesson for tonight, our scripture lesson, comes from the 17th chapter of the, of the book of Acts, verses 20 through, 22 through 34. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we join Paul here on an evangelism journey into the heart of the Gentile world. He has previously moved throughout Asia Minor. He has gone you know, from Antioch up through what would be modern day Turkey to visit the cities of Ephesus, of uh, Corinth, of um, Galatia and so on. And now he is in Greece proper and the European mainland. Here he is evangelizing in Athens at a place the scriptures call Areopagus, which is another way of saying the hill of Ares, or sometimes it's translated 
Mars Hill. So here he is on Mars Hill, and he is giving his standard stump speech, right? He is an apocalyptic preacher. He believes that Jesus has come and inaugurated not only the, the coming of the kingdom, but the end of history. The end of history is upon us. The, the invitation now into relationship with the God of Israel has been extended to all the Gentiles. And now everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, has the opportunity to come into full relationship with God and to repent of all their sin to prepare themselves for the coming world. This is a very typical Pauline speech, right? The time is short. The repentance, mercy, forgiveness, grace, and all of that. But Paul does an interesting thing, right? Paul's a good evangelist. He knows his audience. And so he knows that here he is in Athens, a city of philosophy, a city of thought, a city of speculation and imagination. And he compliments them. Well, look how religious you are. Look at all these shrines that you have, right? He doesn't say, look at all these terrible pagan idols you people have. It's probably what he's thinking, but it's not what he says. And he says, I can see how religious you all are. And I see also that you have an altar inscribed to an unknown God. Well, the God that you don't know, I know, and I'm going to tell you about. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, he says. Now, he goes on to say that this God put human beings in places around the world, in different countries, in different times and places, so that they would explore, that they would find and seek after God, even using a, a word that means to kind of grope in the dark, right, to reach and find God. And he says, well, then this God obviously cannot be the kind of image that you're used to, not a God made out of gold or silver or bronze or anything that we could fashion, because then how could that God have created us, any God that we could create as your own poets? He says, your own poets know this. And he quotes um, Eratos, who is a Greek poet from the third century BC, who had said something like, for we too are his offspring. Now in this, what's interesting is we might wonder what God is a pagan Greek philosopher poet writing about in the third century BC. But the Greeks had also developed a kind of philosophical tradition, at least the philosophers of Athens had begun to imagine a kind of philosophical monotheism, where they began to place less emphasis on the Olympian gods, less emphasis on Zeus and Hera and Apollo and all those folks, and more emphasis on the one true God who sort of represented this perfect ideal. They called this God the God, Hotheos. They didn't really know much about this God, except that this God was the source of all things, right? This was an idea that Plato and other philosophers had always wrestled with. What is the relationship between the one and the many? How do we have unity and yet all the diversity that we see? And Plato had imagined an ideal, a supreme good, a supreme beauty. 
and other philosophers had attributed those qualities to this sort of nebulous, the God figure that was different philosophically from all the gods of the pantheon. And so Paul is a good evangelist, right? He's appealing to their philosophical tradition, this philosophical monotheism. He's appealing to their traditions of putting up these shrines, and by the way, a tradition of putting up a shrine that says to an unknown God, which seems like a weird thing to do, right? But if you're already a believer that building altars and idols to your God is how you get that God to treat you well, you don't want to miss anyone, right? You don't want to like slight anyone. So you create an altar that's like and the rest, right? Kind of like the ending of the old Gilligan's Island theme song where they just sort of set, lumped in all and all the other characters, right? Whoever that other God is out there, no offense, we just don't know your name. We're worshiping you too, just in case you're keeping score. So Paul uses this practice of the unknown God and the philosophical traditions of Athens to create an opening, to get the people to listen to his message about God. But see, that opening, it's not just an opening for Paul. And I think that's what intrigues me so much about this story, is the opening that he finds is not an opening just for him and for his successful evangelism. We're told he made a few converts and got some other people who are at least curious to hear some more. But it's an opening for us, too. See, what those people on Mars Hill discovered and what we learn is that when we acknowledge our unknowing, when we say that there might be more out there than we know, then we create the space to hear and receive something new. See, we often imagine that God is something knowable in the way that we can know other things. Right, that we can, you know, become masters at some craft or at an art or a science, right? And in the same way that we can develop expertise in those things, we can know God. Even though our own philosophers warn us against that. Aquinas and others always said, everything you can say about God is wrong. <laughs> it's only the things you can only say what God isn't. You can't say what God is. Right, because as soon as you say God is this, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You've you you've gotten it all wrong. As and other people have used similar arguments, saying that the moment we think we have captured the reality of God is the very moment we have deluded ourselves and we have misunderstood what God is. All of our definitions come up short. Writer Peter Rollins has this thing every year called atheism for Lent, which sounds somewhat counterintuitive. But what he means by atheism is letting go of whatever God image you have, whatever that God image is, whether, you know, it's that bearded old man in the sky or some nebulous idea, whatever that is, let go, get rid of it. Because only when you get rid of that God image, do you experience God? Are you open to actually experiencing God? It's our God ideas that get in the way. And that's an interesting point, right? Because it's not only the ancient Athenians who had a lot of idols. 
We do too. We just don't make them out of stone anymore. Our idols are often thought constructs, belief patterns that we hold on to, images of the world that we create, images of God that we create, images of how our relationship with God works. And usually those relationships are much like you know, fix-its or Santa Claus or vending machines, right? If I put in this prayer and pull the lever, I get my thing out, right? Um, and so God becomes reduced to something that serves us. And what we find out is that the moment we think we've got God figured out, we have not understood God. God becomes unknown to us. Paradoxically, only when we say, I don't really know what God is, right? I don't, I can't know that, that we begin to understand who God is and what God is doing in our lives. God is so much more, so much more than we are capable of conceiving that we are on some sense always closer to unknowing God than to knowing God. Now, of course, there is a saving grace here, is that the knowledge that we're called to have is not intellectual knowledge, it's experiential knowledge. When God says that he knows the sufferings of the people in Egypt, he doesn't mean he's aware of them, he means he knows them, he feels them, he experiences them. That is how the, the Hebrew word yada, which means to know, works. It's a kind of experiential knowing. And so what we come to understand is that it's not about the figuring out God. When we try to figure out God, that is what limits us. When we seek to experience and know God is when we come into fuller understanding. And that's only possible when we let go of whatever it is we think God is when we let go of our preconceptions, when we let go of our images, when we let go of all of our ways in which we fashion God in our image instead of the other way around. There's a great quote by Anne Lamott who said, you can, be, you can rest assured that you have created God in your own image when he turns out, when it turns out that he hates all the same people you do. <laughs> There's this sense that we are much more inclined to fashion God so that God fits our understanding and our ability to understand. But in reality, all of our altars are to an unknown God that we do not know. And in that is our opportunity. Because when we acknowledge our unknowing, we leave room for God to come in. We leave space for the word to inhabit and indwell us. And then we can respond to the messenger as those in Athens did those many centuries ago and say, we will hear you again about this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. For more information about the podcast and our congregation, visit www.stthomascongregation.org. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us again soon. Thank you.